people have attacked your house, slashed your tires, shot your dog, and cough, cough, cough everywhere you go. Why did you put yourself through all of that for a game? I didn't. Because I didn't cheat. On this episode of Final Answer, we'll take a close look at what was fact and what was fiction in the third part of the ITV AMC drama quiz. So what did you do? I just tried to be entertaining. And to get the questions right. <laughs> and to do my wife proud. Mainly based in the courtroom, the drama features Helen McCrory as Sonia Woodley QC, Sean Clifford as Diana Ingram, Michael Sheen as Chris Tarrant, and Matthew McFadden as Major Charles Ingram. And while some of the production team are reuniting here, everything has been recorded at a safe, social distance in lockdown from our own homes. Hi, I'm Alice Pierce, and I'm the producer of Quiz. Uh, hi, my name is James Graham, and I'm the writer on Quiz. Hi, I'm Dan Winch, and I'm one of the executive producers on Quiz. It was certainly a really interesting experience for me to go through this process, having watched this scandal unfold in the media and having a certain impression of the characters involved and then actually meeting them and, and realising that, you know, they are human beings and they are, they are also very, very lovely people, you know, and you, you, your heart really does, does go out for people, I think, that get caught up in, in media storms like that and who are presented in one, a very one-dimensional way to the press and who aren't able to have their own say yeah, we spoke a lot, especially between them seeing the stage play and our decision to turn it into a television drama. I was in contact with them quite a lot to check in on them, if they had any concerns, if they had any things they really didn't like about the play or didn't want to be in the television drama. And it was mainly the family stuff. They didn't really want huge attention, understandably, on people who weren't involved directly in this, this story and weren't responsible for anything that happened. You know, I, I really feel for them, regardless of, you know, what happened and whether they did it or not. You know, um, I think they went through a, a very, very difficult thing. It just got easier. But on Craig David... Why? Why did you change your answer from A1? Well, you can hear it. Listen, you can hear the gasp. I think I'm going to go with A1. Um, One of Diana's best tips. Always listen to the audience. One thing we've discovered, actually, in, in, in examining the story on these podcasts is that the coughing clips, actually, of the major and his performance on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire are actually still the most popular of all millionaire clips on, on YouTube, way more than uh, the clips of people winning a million, like Judith Keppel in the UK. This is the defining narrative that people have or seem to be interested in when they go searching for historic clips about Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And as we discussed in the third episode of Quiz, those clips are contested because they are, by default, uh, have been affected. They were edited and altered by the prosecution with reasons that they explain for why they did that. But ultimately, when people are looking at those YouTube clips, they are not necessarily hearing exactly what the major heard and the exact levels of those coughing as happened that night in the studio. Final answer. Yeah, final answer. Well, uh, what a show this is turning into. So once people have seen the third episode of Quiz, and I think it's actually the episode that will surprise people the most because it's the largest amount of new information or the challenges to the normal narrative around the Ingram's guilt, 
Uh, so we thought it'd be interesting to maybe go through a list of questions that audience members might have over what is real, what is not real, what is made up, what we've exaggerated, God forbid, as if we would ever do that. So Dan, uh, why don't I start by asking you, I wonder if you know the answer to these questions about what I uh, made up and what I didn't. <laughs> so the first one, do you know whether or not the questions used in each of the contestants' appearance on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, from Adrian Pollock to Diana and finally to Charles, were those the actual questions that he was asked and answered? They were indeed. There's a fantastic fan site um, for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that, um, that we've all trawled these past months. Um, I'm sure, um, together with the, uh, the, the footage... And all the research James had done initially, he knew a lot of that information already. So, yes, they were correct. Mm. And now, Good. my turn to ask James a question. Were the responses from Chris Tarrant, our Chris Tarrant, Michael Sheen, the real transcripts from those quizzes as well? They were and they weren't. So, yeah, so with, um, with regards to the dialogue that, that Michael Sheen speaks, as Chris Tarrant, to Charles, we had a bit more flexibility there, I think, actually, in terms of not being as beholden to the verbatim transcripts. I think it's because, it, in a way, actually, this is probably not the answer you want to hear, but there's a legal question here. It's actually legally easier to write and fictionalise some of the dialogue than it is to present it as exactly verbatim, because then you're just drifting into documentary territory, and this is not a documentary. We are taking some licence throughout the story. Uh, having said that, though, of course, often what you find is the things that I make up are nowhere near as fun or as good as the actual transcript, which I hold my hands up to. And actually, I think one of my favourite lines, um, it's, it's psychologically really interesting to watch the real clip of Chris Tarrant as he studies the major opposite him. This is a guy who didn't do very well the day before. And he assumed he was going to be out of the chair really quickly in his second appearance. And then suddenly here he is, this brave man taking these risks and getting the questions right. And you can see behind Chris Tarrant's eyes, this, this new awakened curiosity emerge about who the hell this guy is opposite him. And one of the lines I love, which we've kept from Michael Sheen to say, is along that he, he tries to unpack Charles's thinking around the Craig David question for the audience just to explain how utterly bizarre and unusual this behaviour is. And I think it's a line along the lines of... Um, so, the Major, who'd never heard of Craig David... Major Charles Ingram uh, was on £16,000. He didn't have to play this question. He said in his own words that he'd never heard of Craig David. Uh, went for the wrong answer. And then uh, I started to lose track of his thinking at this point. Well, I rather lost the plot with his thinking then. Uh, but he changed his mind, knowing that he would lose £15,000 if he gave the wrong answer. He went with Craig David, who he'd never heard of. <laughs> and that's the right answer! And it's just a great example of, of Chris Tarrant doing what he does so well, which is to unpack for the audience exactly what's going on and to infuse a bit of comedy in there as well. The court scenes, James. Now, how much of that was fiction and how much of that was from the transcripts? Was it word for word in any circumstance? Yeah, that's a good question. It was not word for word. Uh, so it's a mixture of fiction and fact. The reason, again, why we did that to the, my previous point is it, you actually get into slightly difficult territory if what you're presenting is completely verbatim. 
because then what you're saying to the audience is that everything is true, everything is verbatim, and of course it's not. So what we took were the, the evidence, the evidence as presented, so all of the evidence, all of the cases that the prosecution and the defence are making are the cases that were put to the witnesses and the accused. The people who turned up in the stand, they were, they were those people, from Chris Tarrant to Larry Whitehurst, the fastest finger first contestant who didn't stand and applaud when Charles won. So that all exists, um, but no, the actual way we frame the dialogue, that's, that's all me. Except for when the judge asks Chris Tarrant if that was his final answer. That is verbatim. That did actually happen because, of course, I could never have made that up. Mr Tarrant, a pleasure to have you here today. Well, it's a pleasure. Well, it's not a pleasure. <laughs> How would you rate the Major's performance on that first night? Has anyone done worse? Has anyone, say, got the first question wrong? Uh, no, not here. Uh, I think someone did once in America. <laughs> And when you saw the tapes yourself, you began to think that something was amiss. If pushed, sure. Is that your final answer? <laughs> so for you, Dan, your next question. Did you know whether or not it's true that at the beginning of the episode you see that we have Charles Ingram taking a Mensa test? Did that actually happen and did he actually pass? It is true. He is actually... Uh... It is true. It is true. <laughs> it is true. It, it actually, I mean, a bit of trivia. We weren't able to use the, the Mensa um, logo for the drama itself, but um, we created our own. So we have this little uh, little Mensa badge that our Charles Matthew wearing in, in the court. But no, it was true. I just couldn't be sure of the exact timeline, though, James. Do you remember when... When exactly he took that Mensa test? It was it was it was after he after they'd been accused and convicted, but before the court trial began. That's my understanding of it, and it, I, it felt really. I was really pleased to be able to include that. It's not actually something that we mentioned in the stage version because we couldn't really find a language to include it. But I think it's such a remarkable thing that whether you know again as ever guilt or innocence aside, the way that the popular media depicted. Charles Ingram and the way that I thought of him prior to researching it was that he was this bumbling idiot who couldn't possibly have answered those questions and I regardless of whatever else people may interpret about the story I really just don't think that's true oh and in the uh, spirit of what did we make up what did we exaggerate I think one of the most astonishing facts about the court case in particular in episode three that I just assume an audience watching it will think we are absolutely taking the mickey and there's no way that can have happened in real life is the moment when a coughing fit breaks out and spreads across the courtroom from the jury through to the press gallery and including the judge um, and it meant that the judge had to suspend the session and send everybody home that is a hundred percent true. It's it's a hundred percent true that in a trial about coughing, a coughing fit broke out, and they everyone had to go home. Um, and I get why we had it actually a lot when we did the play in the theatre. You can't really do a show about coughing in a theatre uh, and not have moments where the audience just loses themselves and needs to put a put a, um, a strepsil in their mouth. It's just it, it's infectious and it, it gathers. But yeah, it's hundred percent true if you can believe it. If I may be allowed to... Order! Order! Or I shall... I shall have to suspend the session. Paddy Spooner's room with the, uh, with the database, was that real? I think this is one of the most wonderful, beautiful, extraordinary aspects of, of this whole strand. Um, that is beyond real it's so real i've seen the photos of that room 
and it's it's remarkable and it's sort of the peak it's it's peak obsession with this game show and one of the first things they did was on the closest two callbacks that we show in episode one where someone from Salador rings you up and says how long is the Humber Bridge there was no clock on that actually and Paul Smith realised potentially how naive that was because of course that might give you time to confer with someone in your living room or in your hallway so a simple thing they did alongside many of the more sophisticated technical things they did on the show was put a seven second clock on uh, closest to answering questions, which obviously really harmed in the first instance Paddy Spooner's entire operation because he needed, if he sat next to you on the stairs with his big file of answers, he needs more than seven seconds to look up how long the Humber Bridge is. So remarkably, and again, this is something thanks and courtesy to Paul Smith that we only discovered weeks before filming and that we're the first people ever to reveal is that Paddy had to sort of pause his operation and he went into his house and locked the door and he really didn't leave the house for three months while he built this question room based on the fact that they had clocked that the question writers were were using a particular national statistics database to get all the answers that they need from births and deaths and populations and number one hits and that kind of thing. So he created this room which he could, I can only describe as dance around, like roll around and bounce around where he came up with a a, a system. It's like a a ballet, a movement he would do where he would be able to run to the (laughs) appropriate sheet find the answer, pivot round, back to the phone and speak back into the phone. And it took him three months to do it, but remarkably, he he did it. Now then, Dan, this is one of my my favourite scenes in the third episode. Did Paul Smith actually meet up with the head of the syndicate, Paddy Spooner? He did indeed. Um, Yes, I mean, fascinating actually. And uh, yeah, James, I know you'll want to to, to go into this a bit more, but um, but in the timeline of, of everything James's research and writing and where we're at with the with the production, this meeting actually happened. Um, it was a matter of a couple of weeks, actually, James, wasn't it? Possibly perhaps a month or two um, before we actually started shooting when when this um, meet took place. Yeah, so it's one of the most um, extraordinary things about when you're working on a on a real life story that you think is sort of complete and finished and your job is to to adapt history into the present but actually it still evolves in front of your eyes so this 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 thing happened where paul smith who came to see the play and enjoyed it and we stayed in touch afterwards the play kind of reawakened his interest in this story and he realized he had a lot of questions still about the nature of, of, of what was happening and particularly this this shadowy group that had managed to penetrate his fortress of a, of a game show. To, to his credit, it's not something we asked him to do or expected him to do, but on his own steam, he started re-interrogating and reinvestigating this himself. And he managed to get in contact with Paddy Spooner, uh, who had also come and seen the show, and they connected and he made this offer to him, which was basically, it's been 15 years. I know we're technically enemies, but no hard feelings. I would love to take you out for lunch and I would just love to hear the truth about what happened, like how how big an operation it was and how successful you were. And they met and they met when we were going into production, but we, we were aware this, this meeting was taking place. And that's where we have received all this new information. So in a way, 
we are, as a, as a television drama, we are journalistically revealing some of this information for the first time, courtesy of Paul Smith and his meeting with Paddy Spooner. So the fact, the bombshell fact, that one pound in every ten pound given away by Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in the UK over its entire run was absorbed and taken by this organisation of quote-unquote cheats. That's we, we discovered that for the first time as a, as a television drama and Paul had to hear that for the first time as a result of researching it for this television drama. And he, I, you know, I would have assumed, like probably you would, he would have been shocked and angry and disbelieving. But I think actually, you know, decades on, he was actually just quite impressed. And it, it is true, as Paddy expresses as a character, that he had no direct contact with uh, Diana or Charles Ingram. That, 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 you know, the joy of writing something like this as well is you start to realise there's just too much information and you glance at these people only, only briefly, but there's definitely a, there's definitely a spin-off show with, with Paddy Spooner and the syndicate that we, that we should make one day. It's interesting thinking, looking at the, the specific measures that the show had to put in place um, with certain of those elements with yes. what Paddy so successfully achieved, wasn't it? You know, and the whole, the whole thing that, you know, is asked now from Jeremy Clarkson about, you know, is there someone there with you? from the company, et cetera, et cetera. All of that obviously came about when there was a knowledge of, of the syndicate, wasn't it? Of course, yeah. So uh, you're, you're right. And now in the modern version of Jeremy Clarkson, it's, it's an incredibly um, elaborate operation they have to pursue. And that's, of course, partly because of the legacy of what happened in our story with the Ingrams. It's also because of modern technology, isn't it? It's because of Google and, and anybody can look up anything now within a split yeah. second. yeah. And, and that has to be protected against. So the world, even since the last version of this show, the world has, has perceptibly changed. Hello, my name is Matthew Worthy. I am the Joint Managing Director of Stellify Media. Uh, we are the producers of Millionaire and I happen to be one of the executive producers on the show as well. I have been working on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire since its relaunch with Jeremy Clarkson for its 20th anniversary. It's, in my mind, it is one of the greatest shows ever created. Um, so my relationship was very much as a viewer before I was lucky enough to kind of inherit it from the other people who had done such amazing things with it over the years. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to have to use my final lifeline 50-50. Uh, computer, take away two wrong answers. Leave Charles with the right answer and one remaining wrong answer. I, th I guess we were aware of the coffee major scandal, but only in the same way everybody else was. It was, you know, we all remember it at the time. It was big, big news. And I'm sure the show we inherited and some of the procedures that were in place were kind of related to that. The experience for an audience member on Millionaire is, 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 is very much based around security. So um, the first thing they have to do as they enter the studio in order to get a, a keypad and, and vote and ask the audience and indeed in order to be part of the audience, they have to hand us their phone. So there's, there's a swapping process from phone to keypad as they enter. They also have to digitally sign an agreement not to not to talk about what happens when they're in there in terms of spoiling surprise for other people. We have an independent adjudicator who, who sits in with the audience monitoring, not just for coughing, obviously, for any little tiny sign that there might be any kind of foul play going on at all. We have cameras um, rigged on the audience just to be monitoring and to be able to play back anything that we might think is suspicious and might lead to contestants cheating. 
That major from last night is nearly up to 32 grand, amazingly. Wait, say one. He's like a new man today. In the time that we've had the show, we haven't ever gone to the CCTV. We have stopped recording once to go back and it was a cough, in fact, that we were reviewing. There were several people in play in terms of the security of the show, one of whom is, is the insurance company. So the money, part of the money is insured for the big wins. And they have what's called a loss adjuster who is who is on site monitoring themselves that there's no foul play going on, that we're playing to the strict rules we create for ourselves and for the contestants. So, in fact, it was a loss adjuster who believed that they heard coughing when they, when they shouldn't and that might have um, led to someone cheating on the question. So we immediately just stopped recording, replayed it back. All the relevant people were brought round to review it and it was quickly, very quickly decided that wasn't the case and we, and we carried on. But that, they are the sort of systems in place. I, and I guess that is a legacy from what happened. We have to respect any kind of, of doubt in our minds. Adnan Kasahogi, Ronald Reagan, Rupert Murdoch. Aristotle Onassis. That's what happens if you go to the theatre yourself, you go to the cinema, in those kind of quiet, nervy, dry kind of spaces, you cough. And most of the time it's quite obvious that it's an uncontrollable cough, but um, people are hyper-aware to it now because of the incident. It also, of course, gives, it gives Jeremy loads to go off because every time someone coughs, he's, he's quickly swinging his chair around to the, to the audience and making a gag about it. So it has, it's, ha it's left its impact in kind of cultural reference and pop culture, hasn't it? It, it? Is that big of an event? So the big question, of course, on the drama is, 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 are they guilty or are they not guilty? Knowing the people that were working on the show at the time uh, and having spoken to them about it, it is absolutely clear in my mind that they were guilty. There is, no, there is certainly no doubt in their minds when they retell that story. So Dan, my next question to you. Do you know whether or not the argument that we depict between Charles and Diana in the dressing room after he wins a million pounds is true or not true? It is true. Um, I, In fact, I know this... Um, very well, because it's one of the things that when I spoke to Chris Tarrant a couple of weeks back, actually, he, he talked about. I think what's great, the way James has written it, is that, of course, while we know that there was an argument, it could obviously be perceived um, in different ways, depending on what point of view you're viewing the argument from. And I think that's the key thing that we focus on in the drama and the, the key thing that is essential to remember. So there was definitely... Uh, an argument in the dressing room, which which took place. Yeah, you say that. You say that, Dad. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because, but they, you know, they the Ingrams would contest that they, they they say they weren't arguing at all. They've got no idea what that that story that emerged in the courtroom was. But as you say, Chris Tarrant and the the researcher who heard it from the other side of the door say it's definitely true. So I have fictionalized that lack of consistency by, in fact. You know, sometimes writing, you, you are aware that you're not at your peak and you are struggling. And But I do remember the sense of smug satisfaction I got when I realised I could transfer their argument dialogue and flip it so that you keep the exact same words, but it's from a completely different perspective. So it's actually the reason why they're raising their voices 
in the performance that Matthew and Sean deliver is because the signal is bad in the dressing room and it sounds like they're shouting, uh, but they're not. You told police you heard the Ingrams arguing. Yes, I remember it very clearly. After all, it was so, like, odd. I mean, you'd be happy, wouldn't you, if you just become millionaires? I'm sorry, but it's so obvious. Signal! We'll talk later! Well, that's what I heard. Oh, I'm sorry, but it's really bad. The signal's We'll, we'll talk obviously. later! I'm asking you all to try and resist a more entertaining falsehood in favour of a less extraordinary truth. Dan, did the Ingrams actually have... Oh, it's one of the upsetting parts of the episode. Did the Ingrams... Did they have a dog called Buffy? And was their dog uh, shot, as we depicted in the drama? Very sadly, it was actually it was actually their cat called Buffy, and it was their cat that was shot. In reality, one of the practicalities of, of we had a cat that we were going to bring in, but um, it transpired just before filming that um, Matthew McFadden had this really severe allergy to cats. Would you believe? So we had to change it to being a dog. There you go. Who knew? But no, very sadly. But the dog—they did have a dog as well, um, though, James, didn't they? And the dog was—they did. They're, they're, they're quite a—they're—they're they're, they're an animal loving family. They had a rabbit and a cat and a dog. It's really devastating, and uh, as with all uh, sensitive issues around harm and and things, you, you, we we had to find what the right balance was. But I think in real life, it, their dog was was actually kicked by some people as they took them for a walk, and then yeah, somebody shot another of their animals, and you just think. As ever, you know, the question around proportionality compared to the crime itself, I, I think, is what is actually one of the areas I'm not uncertain or ambiguous about. I think it's safe to say that the response and, and the, the level of scrutiny and the level of punishment that the Ingrams received across the board for this alleged crime was not proportionate to uh, to what they were accused of doing. And that was one of the most upsetting moments, I think. Um, although you are right to... But Dan to then sometimes point out the um, the absurdity of producing these kinds of dramas. I do remember the moment. I mean, it was less than a week, I think, before we had to start shooting, wasn't it? When when we realised that that Matthew wouldn't be able to was, hold the animal yeah. because he'd be sneezing and coughing and, and and crying. Absolutely, yes. Plenty of space for the kids to. Um, and we have a cat now uh, for the family to. Uh, well, yeah. And there's a moment I was I was frantically rewriting some some pages at the time, and I remember getting some casting emails through with pictures of dogs staring at the camera and saying, do you like this one? Do you like this one? Do you like this one? And at that moment, I was like, I had to just say, I, I, do you know what? I, I don't really care. Um, just pick a dog. And although I have to say, I'm really happy with the dog that they picked. It's very, very fluffy and white and cute. But it's, uh, yeah, sometimes your head's not quite in the game, is it? Did Diana write a book about how to get on a millionaire? Yes, she was. She was writing a book with her brother, Adrian Pollock, and they had a commission from a publishers. People were very excited about it, given that both of them had managed to get on the show and do quite well. So it was all of the little hints and tips that they had learnt as a, as a community, as a collective, all the fans of the show feeding into this to give hints and tips about being what they called, uh, the word they used was being chair-wise. It's uh, not just how to get into the chair, but once you are in the chair, how to use the chair to your advantage. And it was, it was um, how you need to control the pace yourself. So Chris Town is going to often try and keep you talking or get you to answer the question. And your job is to use tricks and tools at your sleeve to control the pace so that you have some thinking time and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, they were writing a book, but it never saw the light of day. So James, I can't remember if I, I'm imagining this, but uh, do I remember correctly that you were given 
Charles's shirt that he wore on the night of the episode. We were, yes. It, yeah, it, it uh, happened when we met Charles before the theatre show, I think. Um, and he very generously donated what I view to be an iconic item of fashion <laughs> now, given that it's so, so distinguishable, um, having watched that clip so many hundreds of times. The real shirt he donated to um, the actor who was playing the part at the time, a wonderful actor called Gavin Spokes. And so we got to, again, in a, in a, in a show where reality and unreality and truth and fiction merge, it was quite nice to have the actor uh, imitating Charles, but wearing the actual uh, T-shirt uh, that Charles wore at the time. We have screened this now uh, for people across the story on the Ingram side, on the Wittick side, uh, and on the ITV side, on the Paul Smith side. And I'm really, really pleased to say that um, so far everybody seems to feel relatively at ease with their portrayal, which is not an easy thing to do over something as contentious as this. And it's not, I'm not laying it that at my door. That's, that's the producers, Alice and Dan. That's the cast. That's the director, Stephen. It's everything, including the music, how innocent or guilty, how fair or unfair, how judgmental a score can be. It's such a delicate balance. But I think people can always tell when you're sincere in that endeavour, when if you are genuinely sincere, that you're not trying to stitch people up you're not trying to misrepresent them willfully what you're trying to do is present an honest showcase of views i've certainly uh i think i'm certainly more critical now um when i read stories um where there are people who are publicly shamed or damned by the tabloid press uh in the same way that i would have done i think before i worked on the show i think and that really for me is the takeaway is one of empathy you know I, I i now know charles and diana and i like them both very much and regardless of i kind of don't really have any interest actually in whether they did it or not i'm more interested in what they went through and the fact they were publicly shamed in such a way you know in such a way that i knew so much about them before i met them so tequin's son we were very lucky to be able to welcome him to the the studio sets um, at Wimbledon Studios. Yeah. And uh, it was, a, well, I think it was quite a, a, a powerful and emotional experience for, for Tequin's son because he was there on the night that the show actually happened. He was his friend in the seat, in the hot seat, wasn't he, James? He was his guest on the night. And so when he visited us, I guess you know, the, the memories it stirred and, and the fact that he was there on the night with Tequin, um, he went and sat in the seat where he'd been um, his dad's guest. Um, he also wants to go and sit in his dad's fastest finger first seat. And uh, the impact on the family has obviously been a significant one. I think his dad had to move. Um, I think they had, it caused them a great deal of difficulties within the family and, um, and, and challenges. And so, so it was been lovely. And of course, all credit to James for building another relationship there, which has been incredibly helpful. Well, I think the, the, the trauma of the, the memories of that, um, on any level, if, for example, I, just, I actually think when it comes to um, to the character of Tequin, who is often uh, sidelined in, in conversations around this story, you, you think, OK, well, on one level, if, there were, if he did some version of what he's accused of, then the consequences of that are still quite sad. But then imagine if, for a second, he is completely innocent of this crime. You've examined Mr Witter? Yes. He suffers from free conditions that cause chronic coughing. He tested positive for perennial rhinitis, hay fever, and cough variant asthma. 
So for the avoidance of doubt, Mr. Whittock has a cough. Yes, and one that would be hard to hide in a hot and dry studio. He's a man who had a diagnosed cough, who liked game shows, who turned up to one of his favourite game shows uh, and hoped to play and got to play. And then weeks later, he gets a knock on his door uh, by the police saying, we think you're part of a, a criminal conspiracy to steal a million pounds. And all you were doing was coughing every now and again. And I think, let's, not, let's of course not forget that nobody knows definitively whether it was him who was coughing. They have no direct evidence to support that. They know that coughs were coming from those areas and Tequin may or may not have coughed on some of those occasions. But what's remarkable to me, and I think what will surprise an audience, is my memory of this story, my memory of watching the YouTube clips and the documentaries and reading the news, is that people knew that it was him. They had evidence that it was, it was him that was coughing, that those 19 significant coughs must have come from Tequin Whittick. And of course, we don't know that. We don't know that at all. And I think that's really surprising because what that do requires of, an, of a jury or a general public is quite a leap of faith to assume that it's coming from one person doing that stuff. Well, what do we know? We know that there were 192 coughs during the recording of Charles's appearance. And we know that 19 of those are on the correct answer when Charles is listing them. That's all we know. We definitely don't know with any certainty that they came from the same person and that there was an organised, deliberate thing. It may have been, by the way, but we don't know. And if it wasn't, just imagine being that man in that family going, I can't believe that I just came on this show, this show that I loved, and now I've been hauled in front of a, a judge and a jury and a prosecutor. And as we depict meeting for the first time in a physical space, the people you're accused of stealing a million pounds with, it's, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's one of the more difficult and upsetting elements of the show, if in fact he didn't do what he's accused of. Yeah, and same. Actually, I can I concur, and I, I just think there's a there's a slightly sad irony in that, um, as James had previously said, you know, the, these are perhaps passionate people, and they found a passion and something to be passionate about and and really into. And and our industry relies on 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 people like that. You know, whether it be drama or entertainment, it felt slightly cruel. I think, and and as Alice has said, increasingly so. I think one of the major themes of the age is the modern mob mentality that is that is generated and ex- exacerbated by the advent of social media. And just imagining really th- what this story would have felt like had Twitter and Facebook and Instagram existed at the time. Our memory of it is that it still, it felt incredibly toxic without those platforms. It felt the, the level of attention and the nature of what that attention was, which was often quite cruel and quite mocking felt bad enough as it was. And, you know, in recent weeks and months, we've tragically seen examples of how the, the, the modern equivalence of that level of mockery or attention or, or toxicity can really affect people's mental health. Yeah, it was sort of about compassion. And, you know, we're filming scenes where, you know, their, their dog has been shot uh, by an air gun um, and where their car gets egged and their daughters are being bullied at school. And it's really, really hard. You know, you're confronted um, with the realities of what life is like for people who are caught up in, in, in you know, in that sort of press attention. Um, and these are just ordinary people, you know. 
he was an army major and, and she was a teaching assistant um, and they had three young girls to look after. So, yeah, so my sort of my focus actually shifted quite early on um, as to whether, you know, because previously, I think before this story, I had been a bit obsessed with the scandal and, you know, their cheats. Did they do it? Didn't they do it? Um, but actually that I found that really shifted and I just became more interested in what they went through. So I hope that will be a takeaway for lots of people that come to the drama. Actually, it slightly shifts the conversation. I sentence you to 18 months in prison, suspended for two years. So... That's it. We're free to go. If we're guilty, why aren't we going to jail? Well, maybe these days justice just has to be seen to be done more than it actually has to be. Don't question it. Go and live your lives. Final Answer is produced by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative. 